0: shrink wrap radio number 859 uk professor harriet sams on ecotherapy and archaeotherapy
1: and now it's time for dr dave and shrink wrap radio Rap Radio, all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave.
0: Today, my London associate and blogger, Isabella Clark, steps in to conduct yet another interview. I really treasure Izzy. And I hope you do too. She's an Oxford grad and a professional broadcaster. She reads widely in areas I don't cover. Consequently, she brings us high-quality guests I would not have known about. Now, here's Izzy with her latest find.
2: Harriet Sams researches, teaches, mentors and facilitates ecotherapy and archaeotherapy. She works for the Buddhist ecotherapy charity Tariki Trust UK and co-hosts Earth Exchange Cafes for the US eco-resiliency, eco-art and landscape belonging charity Radical Joy for Hard Times. She co-facilitates Through the Door Imaginal Workshops for the Climate Psychology Alliance. Her writing has been published on widely ranging but interconnected threads such as Myth, archaeology, earth-based spirituality, environmental art and climate ecological chaos. Harriet is currently researching for her PhD in archaeotherapy at Bournemouth University. Now, here's the interview. Harriet Sams, welcome to Shrink Wrap Radio. Thank you so much for having me, Izzy. It's lovely to be here. Well, you have such wide-ranging interests: ecotherapy, archaeotherapy, But let's start with your story. How did you find yourself
3: going down these paths? the The very beginning of being be- well in myself and being uh, feeling the most authentically me, I think, was always from a ver- from a very young child out in nature. So I think I was one of those children who who didn't want to be in the house come rain well i don't remember it ever being rainy or wintry but i i remember very distinctly that i always made a beeline for being outside um we uh we were very lucky i grew up in east sussex actually near, in the weald which had forests and rivers and open pastures and um you know so so i could easily get to these sort of wild spaces and so I have a very strong memory of being well, being peaceful, being myself in that natural landscape. No matter what was going on in the family dynamics, in the house, there was always a place for me. So I think really um, my my trajectory as a grown-up um, and then a, as an academic and as a professional is always actually about being, being able to return to a sense of... Um, sense of being connected to the land and I think that as time's gone on um, I first started out as a archaeologist as a field archaeologist because I had that really strong feeling of being connected that I wanted to be connected literally grounded in the ground with my hands in the dirt Um, and then feeling that that was only answering part of it because the so the mental aspect of being a field archaeologist is quite reductionist it's quite systematic and there's a lot of theory and a lot of sort of process. So I felt that being an archaeology uh background wasn't the whole answer, but it was very much part of it. And I realized that that the sort of softer side of belonging to the land was missing. And so that was when when I started exploring that really and and noticing, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that there wasn't really a language about earth-based connectedness um especially not in sort of therapeutic language um and it wasn't obvious although there were, had been a lot of uh, literature and a lot of work already been done in sort of deep ecology and things like that um so so i think yeah i i sort of really moved from uh having this hunch that that the world was speaking to me as a child that that I felt safe there. I felt like I belonged. I felt like there was a resonance there um, into sort of reductionist field archaeology and then into this sense of um, what's really going on. You know, what's really, what, what do I really want to get closer to with this? Is it my ancestors and the historical record and the archaeological record, or is it that connection that, that sort of sense of belonging. Um, and so so as the years have gone by, I've sort of retrained in ecotherapy, um, in green economy as well, working out the how to, on a cultural level, on an economic level, how to guide our behavioral patterns in a more kind of cultural way. Um, and so now, fast forward to to now, um my role is uh Uh, I'm a a trained ecotherapist, which is sort of environmental practices um, to help people feel connected to to the landscape very much on a sort of uh, basic level, like people just needing a little bit of nature connection because they live in cities and they need to just get out and about, or the more deeper nuanced levels of um, more emergent animist um, connections to sense deeper sort of psychological uh, nuances that that the landscape can offer so so that's kind of where i'm at at the moment um with things it's such an
2: interesting journey and if one of the um one of the labels is is archeotherapy and how would you how would you sort of define that because i know you do run some courses um that um that sort of are under this kind of heading, so what would that look like if someone were to go to an archaeotherapy course or to attend an
3: archaeotherapy course? okay, so uh, I will assume that people listening to this might know a little bit about uh, ecopsychology or ecotherapy um but as a very very broad background, there's quite a lot now um out there to be able to access Earth-based therapeutic practices that would be called ecotherapy or eco psychology. So they would be connecting to, or you know, uh, being within a more than human world that is includes animals, plants, basically non-human and elements within the wider world. So as I was training and coming from an archaeological point of view. Um, although I was working, actually I was training just on the outskirts of, of Leicester, which is very much a changed, human changed landscape, where there's you know straightened rivers and deforested areas and roads and all sorts of things. So it's totally not a natural environment, but it's it would be what I would call a sort of plagioclimax where where the natural natural way of being has been radically changed and then it's managed at a certain way. Which benefits humans, basically. Um so, so what I was what I was finding when I was going through this training was that there was just a, an assumption that there was like nowhere for the human heritage story to sit. And so as I was thinking about this, it, it wasn't I, I don't think it was particularly obvious because there was always a, a sense of work with the human landscape. You know, if you find a brick wall, that's part of the language and things. But that so it was it was a sort of it was an assumed uh, part of it, but it wasn't. Um, it wasn't made overt that most of the landscapes that ecotherapists or eco psychologists are working with have actually got a human heritage story within them. So, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, well, if if the focus was put on uh, noticing that the landscape that you're in has all these natural aspects to it you know trees and plants and animal tracks and those sort of and obviously the 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 elements and the weather and all of those sort of geological aspects but if we foregrounded the human heritage side of things what what would change about the the um the quality of the mirroring that was happening Um, and by that what i mean is um being being uh, able to go to a forest, for instance, and being able to see, say, an oak um, in a way that tells you a lot about who you are and about your relationality to the world um, is extremely important, and it's very rich. And you, and there is a a, a relationship that can be built with a non-human. However, there's a different quality to when you go to go somewhere and there's human heritage mirroring you um and it asks other questions with a different focus it asks questions such as um what's you know what's the story of this landscape um and is that is that a story that is um is powerfully beneficent or is it extractive or is it colonial or is it, um, is it healing? Is it divisive? Is it inclusive? You know, so there's actually the, it, the landscape then becomes more about um, understanding human ways of living on the, on the earth. And then, oh, and so, so actually the mirroring is different. And so there's much more of a kind of sociological um, conversation that begins mm-hmm. uh, and happens, but even sort of deeper than that, and really at the absolute core of it, which I think really comes up in sort of prehistoric sites more than, say, industrial sites or medieval sites, purely because the 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 human landscape remains are almost so subtle that they have become ecology again. But there's a point in time. Where, where where, we view, we can actually see that the human ecology divide f- stops and there becomes the, the re-enmeshment. And so what happens is the humans are no longer this kind of dominant figurative uh, sort of power upon the land. There is actually a point in time when when the human story is is part of how we how we uh see the world and how we interact with the world where where we actually become we see where we become one in our own heritage and that that point in time for me as a prehistoric archaeologist is absolutely fascinating and i think that's what what really goes back to that very early childhood feeling of being at one with with the natural world although i was you know obviously in a very human made changed plagioclimax. um and i think that that can often be such an important place for uh, a participant or a group to reach mm. because all of the kind of the the sort of the the, the crap or, or the challenges or the or the the pain that they've had that they've excavated through to get to that point almost dissolves and it becomes it comes quite becomes quite unnecessary because we've returned back to that real truth which is humans in the world are one and the same and and it's the trajectory that's turned that's that's um, separated us is really only a very short period of time however even even though it's only a short period of time it's a very powerful and very important period of time to be brought to
2: so what kind what what sort of issues do people come to these these kind of courses or these kind of practices with what are they what are they looking for what are they looking to find or do they or do they or do they come with all different reasons and end up and end up sort of feeling the healing benefits of the same Sense of truth and connection.
3: That's that's a great question, and I think it's um, it's something that I'm still working to understand. Currently, I'm, I am, as you said, uh, I'm researching this as a as a field and an emerge emergent field in a sort of therapeutic basis, and so things like finding out the boundaries of of the participant's um, suitability are um, are very much in progress. Mm. So far, I've run uh, three archaeotherapy group practices together for uh, a couple of months, sort of six weeks group process. Um, and in that time, the participants have, yeah, as you say, they've varied very much in their, in their need. I think there's a general need to reconnect. Mm-hmm. So there's that sort of uh, a lot of people say, I, I'm just really interested in... How archaeology and ecotherapy can can be merged into, into something therapeutic. Um, so that's the kind of standing point. Um, and then a few cup a couple of more personal reflections of, you know, I've 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 gone through a personal experience, a pain, grief-field experience, and I feel that. There's something in the landscape that can be my healer, so I would like to have a little gu- bit of guidance. So there's those sort of things that come at the very beginning, but the pro, but what we try, uh, what I try to do um, and try to engender, very much comes from archaeological process, which is, it's chronological and strateg- tra- stratigraphical. Sorry, one of those <laughs> words for you to say. <laughs> but, um, so. Which is very much sort of in the, in the McGilchrist kind of uh, two hemispheres thinking is 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 merging both the left brain and the right brain. So the so to say, we can excavate through time from the modern time industrial archaeology that kind of mess of how we've got to where we are, and then into sort of medieval. Uh, you know, deeper time are beyond our known family history time where there's these kind of pulses and impulses of family or cultural knowing, but we're not that sure of what it looks like, but we can go and explore that and see the sort of deeper but more but familiar still uh, things that are coming up in the modern lives, in our modern lives. And then we go down through into deep, deep time prehistory um and as that process goes goes on and these layers of uncovering um we sort we sort of using a left brain stratigraphic um logical sequential process to excavate through time um but actually as we do that the the right brain the kind of the more uh, conceptual uh, the more sort of meta narrative part of the brain becomes more and more uh, valued, mm.
1: um,
3: and and it's so all sorts of things become become uncovered or make sense for the individual. COVID, of course, and being online when trying to do group process and and this sort of thing is fascinating because of course you'd think that with anything to do with the land, you'd all have to be out on the land. Yeah. Of, Yes. So when COVID hit and it was like, okay, how do we do ecotherapy or land-based therapeutic practices where everybody's stuck in a room staring at the (laughs) computer screen? But actually it's, it's turned out to be really almost more meaningful because the people's landscape becomes very personal. It becomes really granular to the individual. So we then meet as a group, we share our own stories. And then each time we then have a practice or say, so this week or this two weeks in between calls, go out to the land and ask, you know, this question or go or explore this aspect. And because it's land specific for that, for that individual, yeah. um, relationship becomes deeply personal and more and more nuanced, without once digging digging a hole, so there's no excavation to it. It's all about relationship, um, and uh, and also if if it were in a say like a kind of um, mutually agreed place in the landscape for for a week's workshop certainly these things could be done but of course everybody would then disperse and they'd go about their daily lives wherever they were 100 miles away 300 miles away but because you know at the end of the course that person is is with that landscape for years for the rest of their lives maybe it does exactly what i would hope that uh, any kind of earth landscape connection does which is it's built a relationship mm-hmm. a real you know one that can be believed because that person can just walk out their front door and go and go to that place
2: one of the things i found i read an article that you wrote on um on a um druidry website and we'll get to druidry in a moment because that's also fascinating um but in the article you mentioned sort of ecotherapy is i think the term was it's other centered mm-hmm. and that that sort of struck me because it's it I often feel that so much is you know oh it's all about me um you know I'm talking about my past I talk about my experiences and the idea of the other centered therapy just sort of struck me as um as a sort of inspiring and you know taking taking you out of yourself in a way that's that actually I feel could be very healing for people. What does that, what's the difference between another centered therapy and a, and a self-centered <laughs> therapy to put it, to put it most blandly?
3: Um, well, other centered therapy um, is very much the idea that it's not the person's individual mind, memories, experiences that, that hold the answers necessarily that there's a there's a, a triangle a therapeutic triangle there's a client there's the facilitator stroke therapist but then there's the location and the place and in this case it would be the earth generally speaking or a forest or if you're talking archaeologically archaeotherapeutically it would be say a, a ruined castle um so that's your th- your third your your other but of course it, it actually it's a very it's a very simplistic noun for what is as wide as the cosmos. To be honest, because when we open up to the possibility of of uh, the other, it could be a kestrel that darts across. It could be a blackbird that that calls. It could be um, vetch that you notice is in full bloom. It it could be that you tripped up on a root, or it could be. The, you say something and then a blast of wind goes across your face and that stops you in your tracks because that's meaningful so the other is actually everything and i i i'm not a psychotherapist um and so i don't work in a group in a client uh, environment where you know we're in a room um in in an office um so I, I wouldn't be able to tell you what a uh, sort of person-centered therapy would look like. Um, however, I do know from, from our colleagues who, who do work in that kind of clinical way um, and from my own experiences with, um, with that kind of uh, approach to therapy um, is that there can often be a genuine worry about how that is, how you move from Person-centered therapeutic practices into other-centered therapeutic practices because, quite frankly, the other can be anything and everything, and there's no control over that. Yeah. And so, as a as a facilitator or or you know therapist or guide or mentor, how whichever approach that you have, um, in your profession, a coach, um the acceptance of the unknown and the not knowing is actually one of one of the deeply important aspects of why this is such a useful and helpful approach to um individuals and groups um although it is quite you know it can potentially be quite Quite worrying and quite quite nerve wracking. Oh my gosh! What if it rains? What if people? What if a dog comes? What if, you know? Of course, these things have to be taken into consideration. Um, But equally, those kind of things are all opportunities for exploration. Um, So the so essentially the other centered approach is um, where we are enmeshed in the earth and. That then, again, brings a very different quality to the the participants experience of what they what they deem then to be of therapeutic value.
2: I'm one of the when you were mentioning, you know, the the other could be the blackbird calling or the because um, I, I spend quite a lot of time wandering around in um, woods and fields and crawling around under hedges and things and um, on certain occasions, so many things can seem incredibly sort of significant and meaningful to me. And there's always this uncertainty of whether I'm, you know, in a process of wish fulfillment or just sort of, you know, imagination or, you know, that it's, it's, it's exactly what you said, that sort of like lack of control. I mean, with a facilitator there, I'm sure there would be a sort of like different experience of questioning into those, um, those my interpretations of what's going on but that must be a very sort of like hazy area for how you know how creative people can be with um with interpreting the significance of something that happens and um and you know you as the facilit- facilitator might might be there thinking gosh i don't necessarily think that's the most helpful interpretation or that that's a particularly benevolent interpretation um, and it strikes me that that must be quite difficult to deal with. Presumably, that's why you get training.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think I think that's very interesting. With anything that's um, that can potentially be of difficulty, you know, I, I think that this very much comes up where that's a fear of what if I can't control what? Then is the result of an interaction that's that comes from the natural world. Um, and I think that this this goes back to what you were saying about who is it right for who who would you who would you uh, agree to work with? It's all about knowing your the limits to the to the therapeutic um, training that you've had. If if you if you think right, do you know what what's coming up is way beyond my my uh, ability to guide you and help you. So you know may, maybe this is for someone else. That's that's actually part of anyone's. Uh, ethical way to approach anything whatever their modality for instance um, you know if you are you know a hydrotherapist for instance you wouldn't throw someone into the deep end if they'd never known how to swim before you know Mm -hmm. it's 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 all about knowing that you're this is the root of it it's knowing that your client um, is safe as safe as you can be but not like uh, cotton wool safe especially when you're working in the outdoors and I think when you look when you look wider at the kind of people's professions where who are working outdoors I think there's actually um a a, a part of risk relationship that is built into people yes. working outdoors so that could be people who do uh wilderness rights, rites of passage vision quests to uh bush Uh, craft training and you know men's circles around fires um there's an aspect of wildness um and i think that's actually always been quite interesting to me Mm. um which again um fascinates me about what it is about being human that um welcomes that um you know so Again, it's a, it's a sort of self-selection. Would I be interested in this sort of thing because I'm at the point in, in my life where there's there's a returning to a belonging that's the core of what's, uh, what's coming up? And with that, am I in a place, in a landscape, in a world, in a, in a modality where I know that I'm safe to have difficult things arise? Yes. So... So I I think that, say, for instance, um, let's say at a castle and the castle has a particular uh, history of um, a battle um, to do with um, a subjugation that happened with the local community. And that brings up for somebody a memory of when they were dominated or continually dominated or domestic abuse or something like that that comes up. Um, And they are really powerful and valid points the uh, and they need to be uh, sat with because the the person m- wants to bring them because it's important for their understanding of of this kind of uh dynamic that's coming up in the in the landscape um and I think it's it goes to Donna Haraway, which I, I know that we've we've sort of discussed a little bit about Donna Haraway and, and sort of staying with the trouble to honour that for for that individual. If if after a session um, it's clear that uh, you know there's further deeper work that needs to be done, you know then perhaps there's a colleague that would be better suited for that. However, the root of um, earth based sort of therapeutic um, guidance in any way is that the earth is there right for you to have a direct relationship. So your woundedness, your grief, your pain, everything that you are, your joys, your your talents, your fantastic ability to be a mother, to be a friend, all of those things, the earth meets you as you are. And that is quite powerful in itself um and and so it yeah it it is it's 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 about knowing that that the earth sort of seen it all before <laughs> and it's writ large in the landscape it's seen it all before we've done it all before it's there and that's that's actually that sort of goes back to the quality of the mirroring mm. if you if we see our own pain mirrored in the landscape, literally in ditches and walls, and and there's a history that reflects our own. That qual- that quality, those qualities of that mirroring are so powerful that they are deeply healing.
2: Mm. Oh, that's that's wonderful. That's beautiful. I mentioned earlier druidry, and I know that you you are also a a, a trained druid. Um something that um, many of our listeners might might be sort of less familiar with. It's um probably more of a um an, an English-British tradition than um than um, than American, for example. Um and you have also you also wrote um this this article that was suggesting some sort of like alignments or connections, um, as a sort of mutual recognition between the role of the the role of a druid and um and that of a an ecotherapist or is, or that ecotherapy fitted well into the druidic tradition so first of all could you give us just a, a a little understanding of what druidry is and how you feel that that tradition aligns well with um this idea of service and of healing using um using the earth as a, as another
3: oh well yeah <laughs> it, it's um for me um just to sort of absolutely get get it straight with 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 people who are listening to this about wondering what what is it for me to be called a druid I I am a druid for me (laughs) it's really important for me to have a study that went along with that so that at the end of it I could say it's almost like uh a, a, a sort of vocation mm-hmm. or almost like but not the same as a local vicar who has to go through the seminary to become a vicar who can then do marriages and deaths and and that sort of thing um because for me it felt like it had to be a learning journey um so that i could understand what it was on a cultural level so so that there was a, a kind of um, service that I could be at the end, which would be called druidic service. That includes baby naming ceremonies, weddings, funeral. I'm a trained funeral celebrant. So there's very much a service aspect of that. But along the way, there's a lot of training. So with the order that I'm in called the order of bards, ovates and druids, which I'm sure I'll give you the link for, there's a there's a sort of threefold type of training that you have to go through to become the druid which in in the traditional sense of the word would be advisor so there'd be something political and philosophical about about that so that would be like where you you're of service but the the, the first two phases aren't less important they're just very very necessary and in, uh, qualities of their own in their own right so the first one is the bard so you learn how to be creative. You learn about the law, the the stories, the myths um, of the land and your own land wherever you wherever you come from. And there's actually quite a lot of of order members from America. So maybe get more American druids, that'd be wonderful. So you learn about the bardistry, how to play an instrument, how to be an artist, how to be a poet. Um, you know, you learn about the the heritage, the written heritage of where you come from. So you can sort of Go oh, that reminds me of the story of Inanna or, or Rhiannon or Taliesin or King Arthur or you know whatever. So, so there's the bardistry, which is yeah, as I said, developing your own creativity. Then in the centre is is the period of training that took me the longest, and that was where I felt that the ecotherapy sat. And in fact, it was it, I made it part of my training, and that's called the Ovate. And it's from the Latin vatus, va, vartus, uh, which meant seer uh, or diviner. So the ovate is the more where I would probably put uh, healer, herbalist, therapist, uh, the person who would learn about uh herbs or about um midwifery and childbearing and those sort of things. So imagine the kind of hedge witch at the edge of the village where everybody goes to for their ailments for their rheumatism or to help them with childbirth and, and things like that. So that took me the longest. And um, I think, and that was, yeah, as I said, and that, that article that you've, you've read, um, which I promise I will rewrite because <laughs> it, it needs updating. That was for me where ecotherapy in my training actually coincided. And it made so much sense that there was a therapeutic well-being for the human being that could be done in the wider natural world where things like tree lore obviously druids are quite synonymous with knowing about trees so that was the that was the the grade we call them grades bard ovate and druid grades the ovate grade was one where where i learned about not only the medicinal benefits of different trees so for instance silver birch is very good if you've got urinary tract infections Oak is very good as an astringent. So if you've got um, uh, cuts, you uh, you know you can take a bit of oak bark and it will dry dry it out and help it stop. So there's like medicinal anything good for menopause. Menopause. <laughs> you, know, you know what? I'm actually perimenopausal as well. Oh, I'm perimenopausal. <laughs> so, and I've been doing some research, but do you know what? Typically, I've forgotten what I've learned which is very menopausal but there are there are but there are more herbs there are more herbs i think than trees i think Um, hawthorn
2: was the only thing that i came across that even sort of like mentioned in passing
3: and that might have been for the flushes hot flushes yes because it's a now also holly um for the hot flushes Mm. but holly you have to be quite careful with because it's very fiery so but it does it does really help with regulating the the heat so so often if you dry if you dry holly and sort of grind it up and then just put a little bit in to make a little bit of smoke in an incense that can often help regulate but because it's literally it's like um we call it sympathetic magic where what it looks like and has has attributes on in its physical life it actually also has uh, medicinal attributes so it's very sharp and prickly which is quite fiery and obviously it's a midwinter uh Evergreen, so it's got this kind of fire in the darkest nights of the year kind of energy so it so it can actually potentially be helpful mugwort is very good for um regulating um, estrogen as well um, but as a contraindication don't do not take mugwort tea if you're pregnant because it can instigate a very strong instigation of uh, menstruation so there's you, lots- learn,
2: you learn all this through the ovate order. yes
3: yes wow and then, and so there's this, and then there's the sacred herbs as well. Um, so sage. sage, well, sage is sage is just like sacred anyway because it's fabulous, isn't it? But <laughs> there's yarrow, there's vervain, there's mugwort, um, there's mistletoe, of course, um, and there's a couple of other ones that create what what are seen as the kind of mystical, magical. Rights, uh, the 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 herbs of the rites of the druids, but that's not the same as medicinal mm-hmm. herbs. There's a massive like apothecary of 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 that. But anyway, so going back to the ecotherapy, Sorry. yes, but but that's fine because actually herb law and herbalism is part of ecotherapy. Um, you know, people who are attracted to certain plants at certain times of year, if they they then research and go, ah, it's because you know, I had a respiratory infection and actually it turns out that that was really good for healing respiratory infections. So there's actually part part of ecotherapy is about knowing, it's all about relationship, quite frankly, all of this is about relationship. It's like kind of like human to human, what what human resonates or what human makes you think, mm, don't want them in my life. It's the same with plants and trees and, and animals we are in relationship constantly with our living world and some just pass us by and then some just go whoa where have you been oh my gosh I've needed you in my life um and then because of the amazing wondrousness of our of our lives we can usually google or pick up a book and <laughs> down all this knowledge-based stuff this wisdom keeping that we can go ah I'm attracted to that plant because of this that and the other and so so actually ecotherapy is about getting to know individual plants and their characters characteristics characters properties for one for a scientific way but also for the the um magical as i say properties of why we're in a certain relationship with certain plants and certain animals and certain trees and so, so yes, it's very, very ovate. So I did um, submit a a paper to the druids about that. Yeah, and then the
2: and then the final order, the the druid, the druid one. Where does your learning go in 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 that in that um, section of the education?
3: Yeah, so that is more moving towards service. Like, so you've got this, you're artistic, you're creative, you've got this sort of joie de vivre, and you want to express it. You've got this basis of knowledge about the earth and the plants and the cohabitors of this universe with you. Um, and so now we're going to develop it into a, a, a spirit-based service. Um, and I don't want to give any spoilers away, but there is um, a, an emphasis on philosophy and um, yes, a, a sort of uh, service-based approach to 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 being druidic, I would say. And I I place myself probably two-thirds ovate, one third druid. I, you know, I think my main practice is about, is it sort of straddles that mm. that section. Some people I, I know who are absolute firmly but bards and they love being bards and they just play music, as you can see, you got it's musical instruments, and it's a massive part of my family's life. So they're real bards. I've also got friends who are just out and out ovates, and I would I would trust them to heal me with everything. And then I've got very very almost um, otherworldly knowledge bearers that are, that are just full druids, you know. So, and that's what I love about it. It's actually uh, they none of them are any better, or you know, it's not like the bard is lowlier than the the mm-hmm. druid it's like there's a wonderful intermeshing of of all of them that make up service really you described
2: to me when we spoke uh, before that the that the training as well as being educational and um and inspirational also has this self discovery element and i mean i don't want to sort of pry into sort of into your into your personal life but do you feel there was something therapeutic for you in going through that training um,
3: that that in itself was had a, had a healing element to it, for sure. I came to it from the archaeological point of view. So you know, when we started this conversation, I was saying um, that 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 young child sitting in that dark in the darkness at the edge of the the barn and just feeling very very much like I belonged. Um, which then went into field archaeology and the reductionist attitude of you know you learn this and that came before that and that came before that and that's how you interpret the the archaeology but there was always this hunch of like our relationship to the land shouldn't be this transactional it shouldn't be this you know easy to define you know there's something really messy about this which of, it's so obvious now, you know. We we belong to the earth, and we came out of the earth, and we've got earth in our bones and minerals, and you know, go coursing through our blood. It's 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 really obvious. But I think for me, I needed to know that I wasn't alone feeling that. And so, uh, I'd academically and obviously professionally known about pre pre Christian Western European. Uh, Iron Age Druidry from the um, from the Romans and so I know I knew about say uh, the festivals the agricultural festivals of Samhain or Beltane or you know I saw I had a a knowing of them but I didn't really understand them and so I went to Waterstones in Carlisle um, and found this book it literally just sort of leapt out Everybody says this, but a a book (laughs) left out at me, and it was The Path of Druidry by a woman called Penny Billington. Mm -hmm. I was extremely cynical. I was like, right, I'm a diehard, academically trained archaeologist. If I get even the whiff of nonsense, I'm just putting this down and demanding my money back. (laughs) Um, But I really was genuinely happy and surprised and reassured that, it absolutely the, the, this sort of approach firmly rooted itself in in non non reconstructing not reconstructing nonsense you know it wasn't the druids who built stonehenge you know those sort of things it was all about earth based spirituality and of our own rather than appropriating and taking from other places it was like what does it really mean to be european what does it really mean to have a mythology a basis of mythology from welsh mythology from you know nordic from from scandinavian from the 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 ones from the romans you know the pantheon, pantheon of the romans of course and how they how they even though they subjugated and colonized britain they as they did it um enshrined british gods as they did it and romanized them so we've got a really good strong idea of what we what we found was sacred uh, what language we still were using to define sacred parts of the world. So Brig Brigantes uh, means of exalted one or of a high place, and so she was of like the moorlands, the high places. But she was also exalted. Or um, you know, Minerva Sulis, the, the the Romanized goddess of the hot springs in 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 Bath. So we know that the the heat of the the water coming out was sacred. Because we gave it a face we gave it a name um so as i was reading this i was thinking okay now this feels like what you can't excavate this is not the stuff that's left behind this is the intangibility of why people lived and that was like coming home it really did feel like you know the answers aren't in the stuff necessarily that i find but when i find them and i get this overwhelming feeling of like this pe- this person from 3000 years ago that makes sense you know i found something that that resonates in that way and um, so yeah there was a very much a sense of coming home and i had to park to a certain extent i had to park that kind of rational professional aspect of me to to fully embrace that i was going on a very different journey you know that this wasn't westernized the even though it is western sort of spirituality it, it was it was non uh it was not christianized as such although christians are very welcome um and some i i know christian druids um so that's you know there is a real overlap and, and, and a sensitivity and an understanding but it was different and it was it it was but it wasn't contradicting my my professionalism it was welcoming it in and and if if uh, there was ever, I had this feeling, although it never really came up and never needed to come up. But if if I did ever come across something in the text that was clearly not from my experience academically or professionally, there would have been a welcome, you know. Okay, thanks for letting us know. I think we can re you can re can re what we've written, and so there was always this kind of porosity, non dogmatic porosity to the to the course, which still exists today. You know, twelve thirteen years later so the this this it seems to me as
2: if um as if it enables healing to come from anywhere this this sense of porosity but um you mentioned that you mentioned the it it envelops the whole cosmos that you have this you have this sort of sense of belonging in something so much bigger and so much faster and um, and it does feel as if that, um, that could certainly give people um, a very different feel about their lives to that, you know, atomized individual on their own going through, um, going through an alien world. Um, it, that, that, that does sound as if it's something that perhaps people, people need. Do you feel that there are more and more people who are searching for and reaching out to these different kinds of therapeutic modalities?
3: that's that's definitely for sure um there's been evidence from around about 2000 plus the uh, year 2000 onwards that um there's percentage-wise there's more people either defining themselves as non uh, sort of abrahamic faiths who are looking for an indigeneity in in itself um but I but since COVID, um, the membership numbers of this particular order, which I can only talk about this particular order, but um, have I think tripled. Wow. In, in the people who who want to join. Wow. Joined. Yeah. So we've gone from you know five ten thousand members now to twenty five thirty thousand membership. Um, people who are go- who are saying I've always thought there was either something different about the world and I want to know learn more or um you know this is this I think I feel like this course can help me understand myself a little bit more as as you said and as I I was saying that self development aspect of like who am I really you know I've played the game I've got a job I've had my kids I've paid my mortgage what's going on in the greater deeper relationality but I think underneath that there is very much a thread where people are are understanding that on a uh, sort of global level there is radical shift, radical change, things are moving, what we once thought was stable and um, going to sort of hold us forever are now starting to shift and so there is a definite move towards people understanding on an on a spiritual level a different way of being in relationship to the earth, um, and I think that something like Druidry, although there are other earth based spiritualities and, you know, the, the, the eco Christianity um, uh, and other uh, other ways of approaching things are certainly helping to find the answers. I mean, I find myself very much privileged actually to be in this position where it feels like. Um, there's, there's more and more of a need, and maybe you've found this with your podcasts, that there's more and more of a need for people to engage with another way of being in the world. Mm. Um, and earth-based spirituality seems to me the obvious one, because I don't think that it's really going to be the humans per se that are going to fix it all. I think it has to be, we have to be taught um we have to find another way of hearing another way of being in relationship to something more than human uh for for some things and for some uncomfortable mirroring actually to happen and and i feel very privileged to be in that position where hopefully with my research um i can certainly offer at least a way that can then go off and be practiced and researched further if if necessary about whether whether this ability to um to Be in relationship to the wounded land, the challenged land, um, is is indeed helpful. I mean, sort of maybe slightly going back to to what we were saying before. My focus is not necessarily on one to one uh, sort of personal development. I think there's there's other ways that are much more better focused than that to be to be uh to be more specific about it what really interests me is the um is not necessarily about the the individual having a healing well-being experience although that happens and that's part of it what what really interests me is is giving and exploring ways in which the earth and the aspects of the non-human work realm are more able to be heard by humans. That's yeah. really where my interest lies. Yes.
2: Yes, I'd and... I think that idea about behavioural change—you—you um, you, you wrote in that article. In uh, my opinion, one of the single most pressing things to address in the awakening of humans to the plight of this world is their individual relationship with and understanding of the natural world. So this kind of this kind of connection, this feeling, this sense of compassion and empathy, um, might might well encourage. Behavioural change and um, and a different way of um, making consumer choices or um, travel choices, holiday choices, all those kind of things, which can which can feed into helping.
3: That's it. I, I'm glad I wrote that and that you've you've said that back. Because and it's nice to hear that my voice from whenever I wrote it five or six seven years ago, that I had that 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 core is still there. And and I think that then that helps me to put into this conversation, something that I think is really important, which is the voice of the land. I go out into the land frequently and partly that's just for, you know, R and R and just, you know, ecotherapy level one, I would call it, Mm -hmm. being out there breathing, really releasing myself from the stresses of, of work or motherhood or, or whatever. But there's frequently a kind of touching, like, Am I still in the right am I still in the right ballpark? Am I still all right to be gently saying to people this is what I'm offering isn't necessarily about healing the individual. What I'm really interested in is healing the relationship um and the individuals then have a healing experience through that but that's that's kind of that's where the again that's where the other other centered focus. Mm-hmm is comes in where it's like um it's not transactional it's not about me it's about the we it's about the they um and that's where i keep saying to the land you know is this is this the am i going about this in in a okay way is this is this the right way is this the right thing and the land keeps keeps on just saying yeah this is this is what's necessary this is really what's necessary um and I think it's it's it keeps reminding me about that. there's a, the tra- a charity that I work w- for and with. I'm on the board of directors of this it's uh, American charity actually if you have American uh, uh listeners called Radical Joy for Hard Times and it's been going for about 13 or 14 years and it's a really simple ethos, which is our landscape. Is getting more and more wounded, polluted, challenged, um, and ev- pretty much every one of us, apart from if we lived in the depths of the, you know, the Amazon rainforest, are living on a landscape that is challenged. Um, and so, what we can either do is kind of blinker ourselves to it and just have our our acceptable place where our pond is and our nature, and or we can say sometimes I need to open up to actually how how difficult and how challenged this landscape is. And the way that I can do that without going completely mad and without losing my sense of soul and without falling into the most painful grief is to go to that place and to say, I see you, but I, you are not orphaned. I can feel the earth underneath. I can feel the resiliency i can feel the pores the, the spores and the pollen on the wind that's going to nestle in these little cracks and turn into beautiful flowers mm-hmm. and you are not orphaned you are not alone and then making something just making something from what you find there a little bird a little mandala or singing a song so that there's this action this transaction of relationship to this challenged place um, and what it does for me is, and for other people, countless people now have done this all over the world, what what constantly keeps on coming up is that there's a sense of, although everything's huge and painful and difficult, and it's also painful and difficult in me because I'm living this too, in these moments i can give something beautiful to somewhere that's that's not so beautiful that's damaged that's that's in pain and in turn i receive something that feels okay and it's it really grounds me um and to and, and it reminds me that the hu- it's the humans that are doing uh, or going to or being in relationship but everybody gets better the you know the, the earth knows it's not orphaned, the, the landscape, that that polluted part of the river or that old factory or that, you know, that dump. tipped dump, yeah. Yeah. It it's no longer just, just you know half destroyed. It's actually still important to that individual or that group of individuals. And and that in itself can then engender, as you say, behavioral change. Because if more people say, you know, it's not OK to treat the world like this. It's not OK to to do this. What then happens is behaviour change comes and actions and activism, which is then thus supported by a much more, um, a much safer way, a much more resilient and grounded way to be in relationship to the earth.
2: That's beautiful. And I think I've taken up, um, taken up, um, an an hour of your time. So unless there's anything that you particularly feel that, you know, we haven't covered and that you wanted to address or about your, your plans for the future. Um, if there, if there's, if there's anything else that you wanted to add,
3: I think I've covered it all. Um, and thank you very much for your wonderful questions and reflections. Um, and just, just to say that, um, there, you know, a lot of us are coming to, to a place where we recognize that there's challenges right now and in the future. Um, and we don't have to do, we don't have to sort of experience that on our own. We're not in a bubble. We can, we can learn from the people who came before through myths, through stories, through poetry, through talking to each other, but also the earth itself has just so much to give us and to offer us. And we in turn learn about ourselves and we can uh uh, you know just feel a little bit more confident in our own decisions um so yeah it, it can sometimes feel overwhelming but actually you know hopefully there are ways that we can feel supported in the future and in our practices right
2: now being grounded i i i love the um I love the sense that the the kind of the transcendent is there in the imminent that the you know the groundedness the presentness the beingness the the soil is um you know we we like to look to the stars and the sun and the sky but um but it seems to me you know an important an important balance to to recognize that this this is what births us and supports us and um and yeah it would be it, it it's it's wonderful to know that there are people who are developing that relationship and um and and working towards a healthier earth that's so thank you
3: that's wonderful and and thank you so much and that's a lovely another conversation we can have another time about transcendence and descendants and i, I, mean, I really I'm... like to have that <laughs> conversation <laughs> yeah so yeah um, very descending right now and it's and it's actually surprisingly beautiful you know it's, uh, it's great
2: so thank you so much thank you thank you so much for being on shrink wrap radio
3: yeah it's been wonderful thank you
2: Harriet Sams inspired me with so many new ideas. I was somewhat familiar with ecotherapy and had a vague understanding of earth-based spirituality, but the way she weaves these and other threads together was entirely new to me. As she stated in the interview, Harriet is not a psychotherapist, and her focus is on the more-than-human world rather than on the individual human psyche. Her work is all about relationships and connections. What she's enabling, it seems to me, is a better and truer understanding between humans and the rest of the natural and human-influenced world, a process that helps with the healing of both. She explained how the Druidic tradition can enhance the connection and mirroring between the individual and her world. Her description of the learning path she engaged in through the order of bards, ovates and druids struck me as a journey both of self-discovery and of increasing awareness of the existing entanglement with the more-than-human world. Part of what I loved about this conversation was the sense that these practices engaged not just our emotions and our thought processes, but also our imagination, creativity and intuition. It appears to be work that integrates the whole of the psyche with the whole of the rest of nature. I'm so grateful to Harriet for her time and look forward to following up with her about transcendence and descent. In the show notes, you can find links to Harriet's website and to other organisations mentioned in the interview. I do hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did.
1: Hi, Dave. Uh, this is Offer calling from neighboring of Padaluma in Northern California, and I am the director of the Zoo Institute, and I would like to share my deep, deep appreciation to your lively, informative, educational interviews i want to let you know not only we have used so many of them in our online courses for continuing education for mental health professionals when i'm on the treadmill i just put my bluetooth and uh, connect to any of your interview at random and sometimes i find myself oh my goodness an hour later i'm still on the treadmill a treadmill because i am so engulf and mesmerize and engage with listening to your live interviews. So thank you for providing such a fantastic resource to therapists, to educators, to the general public. So I can't wait to hear your next and next and next interview. And as you know, I'm not giving compliments very easily. And you'll be the first one to know that. So this is really real appreciation from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Dave.
0: Thank you, Dr. Ofer Zur, creator and former owner of the Zur Institute, through which we've been able to offer continuing education units. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my London associate, Issy Clark, and UK professor, Harriet Sams, for their fascinating conversation. Next week, my guest will be inspirational quadriplegic author Brooke Ellison, Ph.D., on her Look Both Ways memoir. Until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourself, others, and our precious earth.
2: You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make you dangerous.